Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Season five kicks off today with not one, not two, but three excellent guests. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to Bernard Donoghue, Paul Kelly and Ken Robinson, founders of the Visitor Attractions Conference. You'll also know Bernard as Director of Alva and Paul as CEO of Balpa. Back celebrates its 20th anniversary this year and I'm finding out where the idea for the event spanned from, how it's changed and developed over the years and we take a look ahead to what 2024 has in store for the attractions sector. Unfortunately, fellow founder Liz Terry, the Managing Director of Leisure Media Group, and also Janet Utterly, Head of Business Transformation for Visit England, were unable to join us on this episode. But stay tuned for lots of insight and to find out how you can get your ticket for the VAC conference this year. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Bernard, Ken, Paul, it is a treat to have you all on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. I think this is the first time I've had three guests as well, so this could be interesting. And three men as well. I mean, it's like a really bad testosterone banana armor, isn't it, really? Just the little flower in the middle of you thorns today. Yes, it's a real shame. So uh, unfortunately, Janet Utterly and Liz Terry couldn't make it along to join us today, um, which is a shame, but I'm sure that they will get lots of mentions as we talk through some of the things that we're going to chat about today. But first, as ever, I want to start with a little icebreaker. I'm going to ask you all the same thing because I'm intrigued as to whether you ended up doing what you thought you might. So, Ken, I'm going to start with you first. When you were at school, what did you think that you'd grow up and be when you were older? I didn't know. Had no clue at all? No, I I didn't have a clue. I was lucky to have a good education. I didn't work at school. Uh, and then I got into a job which was, I was very successful at it and it was very boring. So I left. And when I discovered tourism and visitor attractions, it took me over. I didn't decide to do it. It told me that was it. Oh, I love it. It's like a calling. At the time it was. I was actually sitting in a turret room, um, which had been vacated by Lord Montague. His desk used to face in. And I liked that because I didn't have to look at the faces of the visitors going past who might complain because in those days Bewley was very expensive and then one day I thought to myself these people are investing their hard-earned money and leisure time in making a decision to come here and it's our job to make sure they have a good time and I turned my desk around and I looked at them all day long and the moment I turned my desk around everything changed Oh, I love that because you could see the whites of their eyes and how they were engaging with the venue as they turned up Well, it's just such a failure, isn't it? If you've got somebody who makes a choice and spends their time and money, you know, a family decision for many people. And um, it should be a highlight. And if it isn't, whose fault is it? It's probably the fault of the visitor attraction, given that the person has chosen to go there in not communicating well enough with them about what they've got and what they would find interesting. This is such a brilliant story. And that wasn't where I was expecting this to go either, Ken. I love it. Um, Paul, what, what about you, Paul? Yeah, I mean, when I was at school, uh, I was interested in sports and that was it, really. Uh, and luckily that dragged me through uh, the various places I went to. But what I was going to end up doing in sports, I think once you get into sports quite seriously, you realise fairly quickly that actually you're not going to make it. So uh, you have to find something else. So latterly, I decided the business was a good idea. 
So uh, I started doing business studies up in North Wales. And for some reason, we, we were doing a sandwich course in those days. I think it was called that. One of those, I got placed at Thorpe Park. I don't know why particularly. So there's a group of six of us went down to Thorpe Park uh, to work there. And I actually worked, started working on the rides. I'm not sure what it had to do with business at the time, but I'm glad uh, somebody thought it did. Uh, and I couldn't believe that that was a job that you could do, you could be paid for, because I, I came from the north at that point and there wasn't an awful lot going on in the 80s. And uh, to be paid, uh, everyone enjoyed themselves, fantastic atmosphere, parties every night. I'm sure it's still like that. And uh, it was just it's just amazing. And that, from that moment on, regardless of what happened after that, including other colleges, other bits and pieces, uh, effectively, I never left. It's always going to be in that sector. Yes. Excellent. Great. Bernard, same to you. Well, uh, this may come as a surprise, but um, my my grandfather was in the Irish Guards. My father was in the Grenadier Guards. My brother was in the Royal Marines. And I had a very large collection of action men. Um, and so, <laughs> um, I genuinely thought I would probably end up in the army. And actually, I got an offer after university to go into the household cavalry. Oh. Uh, I don't think I've ever told anyone this before. Anyway, it just it clearly, I, mean, I didn't pursue the application. It didn't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't for me at all. Got really into politics. Um, so I started working in the House of Commons, House of Lords, and the Council of Europe in Strasbourg. Um, and then I've just been in sort of lobbying, campaigning, political world ever since. But I, I, I still, I still miss the uniforms. Can't deny it. <laughs> I think we'd like to see you in that uniform, Bernard, if I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so from the lobbying aspect, which is obviously a really big part of the, the role that you currently have, how did the attractions bit kind of s- slot into those? Like, where did where did the two join up? It's a really odd coincidence. I was um, trustee of a charity that Diana, Princess of Wales, was a patron of. And I was working full time for a charity that she was a patron of. So when she divorced Prince of Wales, now the king... Um, she reduced her patronages down from 187 to six. And I happened to be involved with six of them. I went to work for her as a deputy private secretary, press secretary. But of course, the moment she died, which was August 31st, I had I had no job. Suddenly I was unemployed. And I got contacted by a woman who well, Ken will certainly know, probably Paul will too, by Sue Garland, who used to be deputy chief executive of Visit Britain, who'd heard me speak at something and said, well, we're just about to create this post of of government affairs liaison. Would you be interested as a a kind of interim role while you work out what you do next? And um, that was in August 1997, and here I am still. But also, can can I add something to that? Because I was lucky enough to be sitting in the room on many, many occasions when Bernard would give his briefing at meetings that were held by Visit Britain. And... It was always the highlight of the day because Bernard in those days never pulled his punches. I'm not saying he does now, but he would he would just explain to everybody in the room what was going on with all of the political parties, which we never understood, and explain what we ought to be doing in order to best put our case. So it was really no shock when he turned up at Alva because I would say this if he wasn't here. He was the star of the show there. And that that expertise that he showed is is blossomed in the job he's doing now this is lovely isn't it aren't you all nice this is a loving probably why you all work together right you will get on so well right back to you ken unpopular opinion please most visitor attractions do not deliver full value for money to most of their visitors Ooh. okay paul and bernard 
Do you agree with this? Will our listeners agree with this? Is this an unpopular opinion? Uh, did you use the word most, Ken? I did. I, I'm, I'll go for some, not most. Yeah, I'll go for, I'll go for some as well. One of my favourite programmes is Yes Minister. Uh, and whenever you'd hear something off-the-wall bonkers, they would say that's a very brave opinion, Minister. That's a very brave opinion, Ken. Now's not the time to justify it. I'll do that on another occasion. <laughs> yeah, we will invite you back and we can, try, we can, we can do that one-on-one, Ken. Um, Paul, what about you? Unpopular opinion. Well, I'm, I'm guessing that anybody that's worked in a, in a theme park will probably have the same opinion I have. And uh, so I worked at Thorpe Park, which was 450 acres, two-thirds of which was water. And at the end of the day, when you were walking out, and in those days, that could be nine, ten o'clock at night, it was beautiful. Uh, on a late summer's evening, calm waters, uh, walking through a park which had just been cleaned and tidied and ready for the next day. It was fantastic. And we all had the same opinion once we were down the pub discussing the day. It's just a shame we have to let people into theme parks. <laughs> because it's the absolutely beautiful place without them there. So sometimes... Uh, people let the parks down. That's a good one. That is a good one. Yeah, and you don't want to let them in to see the beautiful bit either, do you? Because then there'd be people there and it wouldn't be serene. No, I mean, uh, those evenings, we we would then, if there was still time, we'd go windsurfing on the lakes, uh, cable water ski around the back. Uh, and it was just a shame that there were all these people came in every day and messed it all up. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure that most people who've worked in theme parks aren't going to disagree with you on that one, Paul. Good one. Bernard, what about yours? Uh, I'm going to go, even though I chair a theatre and I know how important the revenue is, I'm not a fan of selling drinks and food to people in theatres because they just make a noise. I can't bear it. I mean, it it depends. You know, if it's a panto or something like that, completely fine. Oh, no, it's not. It kind of allies to to what Paul was saying as well, which was, I don't know whether it's an unpopular opinion. I think it's probably a popular opinion. But visitor behaviour, whether it's in a theatre, a museum, an art gallery or whatever, has completely deteriorated post-lockdown. Some people's behaviour is getting worse and it's very difficult to know what to do about it. Yes, I agree. I don't think that's going to be very unpopular at all, actually, considering some of the things that we've seen recently. Thank you all for sharing. OK, let's get back to the serious bit. The Visitor Attractions Conference. It's 20 years old this year. Uh, if you are listening and you're not familiar with it, one, um, why the hell not? And two, you need to grab a ticket today. It's the leading networking and learning event for visitor attractions across the UK. And I first visited in 2019. October 2019 and it was the first sector specific conference that I had been to Um, we'd been working in the sector for probably about three or four years had never really at that point kind of gone all out on our like this is what we're going to niche in this is what we're going to specialize in so I was kind of doing a bit of a fact-finding mission really and I came along and it absolutely blew me away I think it was the one it was one of the friendliest conferences I've ever been to. I think you'd you'd created an environment where everybody was really welcome, no stupid questions. Everyone from speakers to guests were kind of felt like they were all on the same level, really happy to answer questions that you had, really happy to talk to you. And I think that was for me. I, I came away from that event. Uh, I went back to my team and said, "This is where we should be. This is the event for us. You know, this is where we should be attending. This is these are the people that we should be speaking to." And and I've absolutely loved every minute of that. I mean, the next one I went to was a virtual one, so it was very different to the 2019 event, but still excellently organised. So firstly, thank you 
for making that happen. But where did the idea for the VAC come from in the first place? Like, how did this how did this come about? So we have to remember that the world was very different over 20 years ago, really, really very different. Not just a question of internet or, you know, pre-COVID and all those things and pre-Olympics, but just very different. And attractions in those days thought and acted and communicated in their sectoral associations. You know, historic houses talk to historic houses. Uh, Curators of museums talk to curators. Um, Bishops talk to priests. Um, Zoologists talk to botanists. But they didn't talk across the sectors. There were two exceptions to that. One was that um, in Visit England or English Tourist Board, there'd always been a committee there, which was across the sectors. But the other one was ALVA. Now, when ALVA was formed, it was a one million visitors plus club for attractions with one million plus visitors a year. Subsequently, um, groups of um, attractions, um, particularly uh, English Heritage National Trust, were involved originally as associates, but it was a one million plus club. And that's only 1% of the attractions in the United Kingdom had over one million. And it was very London-centric. And Alva had a five objectives, four of which were about government. And the, the interesting thing was that I was very, very good friends all through this time with Lord Lee, who was um, you know, the, the, a very, very big part of the early success pre-Bernard uh, of um, Alva. I said to John Lee, look, John, could you not change your name to Alva and be involved with all the visitor attractions? Because they badly need something which glues everybody together. And we need to get across this, uh, away from this sectoral stuff. And um, everybody was talking about, you know, historic houses talk about the house, Museums talking about the contents of the museum, but they weren't talking about visitors. They weren't talking about, you know, how you communicated with the visitors or what they were motivated by or or how you could better manage things for visitors, give them better. They weren't doing that. So John agreed with this. And in I've got the original papers here. I looked them out that I, I was asked, first of all, by Alva in December of um, of 2001 to write a paper on the future of Alva which is headed Alva in the future, representing all visitor attractions. Then after that, the conversation went on and we realised that we couldn't, if we were going to have some kind of overall event, we couldn't do it without the National Tourist Board. We couldn't do it without Visit Britain, Visit England. We needed their imprimatur. We needed them to talk to DCMS and make sure it would happen. And also, we wanted to do this not on a commercial basis, but being by the industry for the industry run by the industry, not for profit. And um, that was a problem because we wanted to do it in the QE2 centre because we wanted to be in the centre of everything. And that was going to cost an extraordinary sum of money. And there wasn't that much money that could in in that first year come originally from Visit England. So the partners in this, the the partners being Alva, Balpa, Paul's organisation, Leisure Media, the wonderful Liz Terry and her magazine, which has forever been behind this event for no recompense, whatever, and myself put up £5,000 each, surety, in order that the thing would happen. You said, we'll stand the risk. Let's do it. So in 2004, um, I wrote the brief for the first conference, and I found in from a 2003, the actual 
the government asked for a list of topics that would be discussed in order they could work out whether or not they might like it. And it's still here. What I like about it is it would do quite well for this year's conference. All those topics are still relevant. So that's where it came from. That's where it came from. We wanted it to have at the time the lowest possible attendance fee to get the highest number of people there. We wanted to involve everybody. And the cast list for that 2004 event, my goodness me, absolutely fantastic cast list in terms of the people we had for an initial event. And you can imagine when it was announced and everybody was behind it, Alva was behind it, I should have mentioned that Colin Dawson, um, Paul's predecessor, was an absolute stalwart of the conference in the early years. He stood by it, you know, when when times were tough. And that's where it came from. That is phenomenal. It was really putting your money where your mouth is, isn't it? By by all of you actually personally investing in this thing to to bring it to life. That's you don't hear you don't hear many things happening in that way anymore, do you? It's all about getting investment and asking other people to make the the commitment to it and take the risk. Well we have a company now, I should say we have a company called VAC Events. And we are all equal, the four of us are equal shareholders. That's to say, um, Bernard and Alva, Balpa and Paul, Liz and myself, for no benefit. Um, Martin does it for us, but we are the people that carry the can, if you like. Um, And I don't think we've ever had anything out of it apart from a nice lunch at Christmas. But apart from that, you know, it's a great feeling of doing something. When you say everybody is very friendly and talks to one another, that's why. They're all in the same business. Bishop, curator, zoologist, you know, person running a heritage railway, they're all in the same business. Obviously, the first event was a success. You've been on and you've done many, what, 20, 20 events since that first one. How have you seen it kind of change and develop over the years? So what did that first conference look like compared to what this year's will look like? And how have those, how have you kind of evolved it over that time to keep it relevant to your audience? Well, I think so. So my involvement directly has been the last 10 years. So I, I'm a halfway through Charlie for this one. Uh, so but I was actually there at the early ones because I worked at that time. I was working at the London Eye just across the river. Uh, and I was good friends with Colin Dawson at the time. I'd worked with him at uh, Thorpe Park. And he, for, for some people may well remember Colin as uh, entertaining Princess Diana on a log flume in 1992, uh, three and four. And I was there. It's hard to tell, but I was actually there. I'm not in any of the photos in Paris Match and all of those places. I have a couple of myself here. I didn't get anything signed by Princess Diana and sent over to me, but, you know, bitterness takes a while. to (laughs) Uh, And I've joked with Colin over this many years. You know, Colin was there, but if you look closely behind the scenes, you'll find I was there too. But uh, so I was great friends with Colin over, over many years and still am. He was obviously contacting everyone he knew about this conference. Uh, he was working for Balper at the time. I was working for the Two Swords Group, uh, had the operational contract for the London Eye. So I went to the first one. And I suppose my impressions of the first one was uh, for somebody who hasn't been there before, uh, the QE2 is extremely impressive as a conference centre. I, I don't go to many that look like that uh, around the UK. Uh, most of them, uh, normally the ones I go to are in attractions, they're slightly different. So it was hugely impressive, both both on its location and what was across the road and how things went. And I was a little bit starstruck, I suppose, for the first one. Uh, now I get the opportunity to sit on the stage 
and look out at everybody and uh, have a slightly different view on it all, but still think it's it's an extremely impressive environment to do that. And I think the biggest change for me, and I think I think we, we may cover a little bit later, is is how we we've broken up the afternoons into separate segments and sections where people can go along to a to a smaller informal group discussing a topic that they particularly want. And I think the the thing I also like about that is the amount of people who want to go to more than one of them that are on at the same time and are, are almost complaining there's too many things to go to, uh, which I think is hilarious. So uh, which means it, it's it's really good. And hopefully that means that uh, next time they'll really think about which one do I want to go to. Obviously, I want to go to more than one, but I'm going to pick my best one. So I think that for me, that's probably the biggest change over time. But uh, what doesn't change for me is is the team that we have putting these things together, which uh, we're actually relatively slick at. Uh, everyone gets the chance to put their opinions, and I'm glad we don't record those meetings. <laughs> and and it works out really well. And uh, I think as a team, it's it's amazing how long we've we've stuck each other, uh, stuck at it, and stuck together. I'd love to be on a, f- a little fly on the wall for those meetings. Have you ever had a fallout about something? Yes, we're, we're frequently violent, um, <laughs> which... Uh, is is a visitor experience in its own right. I think um, we pay for it. We we, ref, we reflect um, the madness that some of our visitors demonstrate on site, and uh, so in that case, I think we're rooted in the industry. Um, the first one that I went to was in 2011, um, so I just joined Alva at that point, and the first one I spoke at was in 2012, and I've been doing the same, same kind of slot ever since. So I do a kind of state of the nation in the morning about. Because uh, Alva obviously gets loads of data and information, and we publish all of our visitor figures and all the rest of it. And actually, we collect and commission much more data now than we ever used to. Um, so I share all of that in the kind of Donahue half hour copyright. Um, what's lovely, I mean, Paul's absolutely right, is that over the over the last twelve years, I think we've seen a real move from people desperately wanting to speak about their successes to being really open about what hasn't worked, uh, and which, of course, is far more interesting and useful. So th- there's been a really lovely shift from people saying, no, 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 I don't have to do the propaganda stuff. Actually, I'm going to tell you what it was like, why it was a disaster, and why we and what we learned from it. And that's so useful. So you do, you do get this real honesty coming from the speakers who know that that's what they find useful too. So, so why not share it? I think the other one is, I do a presentation about, um, is there core behaviours of successful visitor attractions, regardless of type? And there are, there's about 10 of them. Uh, But one of them is the ability to foster creative partnerships with unusual suspects. So the presentations that are most fascinating for me is where a visitor attraction, it doesn't matter whether it's a cathedral or whether it's a museum, a gallery or a theme park, have teamed up with someone that you wouldn't expect them to team up with to tell the story of their people and places and collections in a new, innovating, exciting way. And those are fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So I love those. There's much, much more of that. Fantastic. Well, on that note, I want to know... From each of you, who has been the most inspiring speaker that you've that you've had at the conference over the past 20 years? Ken, let's start with you. Who do you think would be on your list for that? Um, I had a look through the programmes uh, going back to 2004 and came up with the following names, which surprised me, actually. I think originally our, our first most inspiring speaker was uh, Simon Jenkins, 
the columnist of the Times, uh, who had very, very strong views, which didn't necessarily agree with what government and others were doing. He did give a very inspiring presentation. And then there are some people who perhaps we would expect less. Um, the, the most single most surprising speaker was somebody called Tristram Mayhew, who titles himself as the chief gorilla of Go Ape. And in a room full of suits and um, quite smart um, dresses and trouser suits, um, Go Ape shambled onto the stage in a khaki shirt and proceeded to explain how he'd done things differently. And frankly, it was riveting. Um, we also had a, we had a chap called um, Tony Berry from the National Trust who gave presentations. His first one was just stunning. And, you know, in the days when HR was less popular, Tony Berry would tell you why you should be interested. And he was absolutely amazing. And Sue Wilkinson, incidentally, of the National Trust, who was the person responsible really for dragging the trust from its sort of old form to its new marketing orientated, thinking about its supporters, future success. She was terrific. And the other person I would mention, another Tony, there's, I don't know whether they're all Tonys, there's Tony Butler from the... Um, the Museum of East Anglian Life, who, again, when Bernard was talking about people talking about doing things differently, and, and it inspires you. Some of those examples are very interesting, but not easy to copy in other attractions. We always look for things that do go across the piece. So anybody can learn from the lessons within the example that we're talking about. And incidentally, we do have arguments in meetings. It's about whether particular speakers and particular topics are the way of doing things. And generally speaking, when we all have a good go at it, it comes out better than it did, you know, when anybody said, well, I know what the right answer is. No, you don't. Let's all talk about it. So that works. So, you know, you get these people that actually inspire and they light up the room, not because of clever graphics and not because of a, you know, forceful way but they light up the room because of the originality of their ideas. Now I'll come to my number one. I'm sorry about this because he's sitting on my screen down there. And that's young Bernard, who since he joined our, um, yeah, okay, there you go. That's the top half that works. You should see the bottom half doesn't work. He's just Look, had just, pins put in. Just for our listeners here, Bernard is giving a little, you know, a little, a little, a little muscle, muscle strong arm salute on um, screen here. Bernard combines the latest immediate knowledge of talking to people across the industry with an absolutely amazing gift of the gab with a power of communication and he's unstoppable and we wouldn't have stood him for all these years if he wasn't so of all the years and all the speakers the consistent best is bernard but we have had other people often surprising who take you you know you don't expect it you think you're going to listen to an ordinary session and all of a sudden it takes fire bernard what have you got to say to that? Well, I, what I say to Ken is there there are packets of cash uh, <laughs> going from London to the South Coast with immediate effect. Delighted, thank you very much. That's is, is really lovely, actually. I've tried to I've tried to change things every year um, to do you know, partly political, um, but also partly about good practice and who's doing what and, and who's interesting. Um, I'll tell you what, one of my favourites, one of my favourite speakers, and it was in a conversation, one of the things that we've introduced is a sort of conversation with uh, slot, which works really well, actually, because, uh, you know, a bit like this, you're off script, you respond to people. Um, Liz chaired a, a conversation last year, so we were in Birmingham last year, and it was all about HR issues. 
And of course, it was, you know, coming out of COVID and cost of living crisis and, you know, recruitment challenges and all of those kind of stuff. Um, and Tina Lewis is the director of people at the National Trust. National Trust getting great, great repertoire here. So um, she came out with an idea that they're doing at the National Trust. And I've implemented it in the three organizations that I chair. And it's made the, the biggest difference. So the National Trust, um, they will pay the rent deposit for your flat if you need them to. So if you're going through a cost of living crisis and you can't get up the cash to put down a, a rent deposit on your flat, they'll do it for you. It's guaranteed money. They'll get the money back. Uh, they've got reserves that they can use it. That was such a transformational thing to hear. You could almost hear the gasp in the room of people going, oh, my God. Yeah, if we if we can, let's do that. And I've now introduced it, as I say, in, in the organisations that, that I chair, not many people have taken it up, but the fact that we've said it has made such a difference to people. I mean, as it is at the Trust, actually, um, there's there's been a relatively small number of people at the Trust who've taken it up. But the very policy decision, the very communication of it just spoke volumes about an organisation that cares about its its staff and particularly those staff who are on you know, really limited budgets. So um, there's been loads and loads of speakers over the course of the last uh, few years. But that for me was a nugget which has changed people's lives and has been implementable. I think that's the key to that part, isn't it? Is that it's it's an it's an incredible thing that they've done, but the fact that it can be implemented, they some, someone has listened to that talk, they can take that away, take it to their board, take it to whoever needs to to to, to okay that, and they can put that into action like that straight away. That's the power of a really good uh, a good, really good initiative and a good speaker to be able to deliver that as well. Paul, what about you? Please don't say Bernard. I think he's had enough praise today. No, 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 no. Keep going. No, you know. <laughs> Bernard, we'll leave that one where it is, shall we? If we can squeeze Bernard into the room next. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, one, one special mention I wanted to give, actually, um, which is we, one of the years, not too long ago, we, inv- we invited Simon Calder to speak, uh, the travel journalist. And I have to say, I, was, I wasn't convinced because clearly he's not working in one of our attractions and um, doesn't necessarily know the industry pretty well. But I have to say, he was hugely entertaining had done his homework, was hugely knowledgeable. And um, so uh, he, he was absolutely excellent. But I think the mo- most important thing for me is that he left us and he said, um, you know, he said to me, oh, we enjoyed it so much, I'll come back later. And I said, yes, of co- course you will. Uh, so <laughs> he went away and he came back at the end of the day to talk to all the, the people that he'd seen early in the day because he loved the atmosphere and he wasn't required to do that. And he came along. And for that, I have to put a special mention in one for myself to actually uh, listen to the others when they say this will be good. And uh, secondly, for, for him, for, for actually, you know, doing a bit and actually coming back later. And he was uh, a fabulous addition and outside of our industry. But so so my inside the industry one is um, somebody I ended up working with because I, I was with the Two Swords group and then they were bought by Merlin with uh, Nick Varney and his merry men. So Nick and his team had obviously been in the industry a very long time at this point, dipped in and out of theme parks and attractions. But Nick didn't actually do many talks. You, w- you wouldn't actually hear him speak about too much. I'd heard him speak over in uh, the IARPA trade show um, held in uh, Orlando every November, and he was absolutely brilliant. And then um, Ken managed to get him to speak at VAC one year. 
And again, he was he was absolutely excellent. And this um, this fits in nicely because now that he's Cernic and he's retired from Merlin, he's speaking again this year. So um, I think that will be really interesting because he, he's absolutely excellent. And by the way, guys, just to show you that we, we know what we're doing here, this is 2004, okay? And it says here, the recipe for success. Nick Varney, chief executive, will talk about the components for commercial success. And that's before, before. So we've got him first. And look what happened. I'm really looking forward to that interview, actually. And I think it would be really interesting to see how he differs now he's kind of outside of the sector. And I think that the format that you've got him in. So that's the interview with Liz, isn't it, on on stage? I think that's going to be a really great format as well. I've seen that work really well in the past where she's interviewed people. And it's just it just feels really comfortable and really conversational. I think that brings out the best of people. Kelly, do you do you want to know who's been of most variable quality? Oh, yes. Tourism. I mean, without doubt. I mean, we've been going 20 years now. Therefore, we've had 20 tourism ministers. Had one a year, like Christmas cards. Um, and some of them have completely got the industry, completely understood it, delivered a barnstorming speech. Uh, and then the next year, you'll get, you know, the, the annual tourism minister pop up and they'll read something flat, banal, uninteresting and we're so torched by the experience that we don't invite the one next you know the one on the yeah. following year so um we're always banging on about this tourism is very very good at job creation in fact we've we've created 20 tourism minister jobs in <laughs> years. um but they are of variable quality the best we ever had bernard um i think by far was john penrose when he had completed his review of the industry and had got very clear views which he put to government unfortunately government didn't do it as they usually don't but he was good and people liked him and gave him a high rating i think the next best was probably margaret hodge um, yeah. uh, uh, who was very good and spoke from the heart but as you say when we other we look at every year we look at a rating of every speaker and in our, at the meeting after the event we go through those ratings and decide those that got good ratings, why did they get it? Was it intrinsic to their their character, their nature, their topic? Was there something special? And those who didn't, why was that? Was it our fault? Did we not brief them properly? Or was it never going to be any better? And that way we managed to manage the conference so that, you know, this the, the attraction sector, we sometimes forget that over half of all visits to visitor attractions in the UK are free of charge. We forget that they are that the majority of visitor attractions are medium and small businesses. We forget that there are charitable and commercial attractions. You know, we, we must be able to bring this whole sector together and move our thinking forward in the way that Bernard has just explained in terms of what he does with Alva. And the other thing that Bernard mentioned was um, Alva's research now. Now, it, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. 20 years ago, you had to wait until the annual book came out from Thames Tower and then eventually from the centre of Luckley. But look to page 16 and there would be numbers, but very little interpretation of what those numbers meant. Now, Bernard uh, is behind much of the work that is done now with Alva. But the key to it is it's not just numbers. It's interpretation. And, when, and because of the uh, communication skills, when Alva put out a message, it is interpreted. It says why it was a successful year or what was mitigating against that. And that, that's so important in trying to move our case forward. 
But it's important in improving the content that you give your audience at the conferences as well, right? If something isn't working, you've got a process of evaluating why that hasn't worked and how you improve on it for the next one. Um, let's just focus on why should people attend VAC this year? What What is in it for them? What's on What's on the agenda? What have they got to look forward to? Um, and how can we get them to book a ticket? I'll happily go first and, and go quite niche, actually. Um, one of the things that I do now outside of Alva or because of Alva um, is that I co-chair the advisory board for Visit London. So essentially chair the London Tourist Board. Um, and I do that with Kate Nichols of UK Hospitality. And we created the London Tourism uh, Recovery Group during COVID. So my my suggestion would be Sadiq Khan. So we've managed to get the Mayor of London to come along and speak at this anniversary conference. And it's, it's not just because he's the Mayor of London uh, and it's the 20th anniversary, but it's because he's the first ever Mayor of London that has as one of his four political priorities, culture and tourism. That's number one. Uh, number two is that he put his money where his mouth was and he funded the Let's Do London recovery campaign, which was both domestic and international with the industry. We delivered it with London and Partners, but he put up the lump sum behind it. And and third, he completely gets that tourism and heritage and culture is both where you grow jobs, and we're very good at it, but it's also where you grow people. It's also it's where you grow people in terms of their cultural literacy or their their sense of community or their independence or their sense of history. And therefore, you know, knowing where you come from enables you to be a, a better future citizen, if you like. So um, my quick my quick word blast would be um, we've we've got him doing a welcome, but also saying why visitor attractions and tourism are so important to him and to the economy and the politics of London. So that's not to be missed. That is a big draw. Absolutely a big draw. Paul, you mentioned earlier about the variety in splitting up that that second session, uh, that second part of the day with the, the seminars and the, and the smaller talks that you do as well. That for me, as, a, as an attendee, is really valuable because you can kind of pick and choose what's relevant to you and go along and, and, and see lots of different talks. What 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 do you think is the is the draw for people to come to 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 the to, to the conference this year for you? Well, I, I was just jotting down, thinking about uh, it's a little bit of an extension of what Ken was talking about. Is the, the it's the variety of what we do mm-hmm. in one place is greater than than anywhere else. And all the conferences I do because of the, the nature of what we do, e- each end of the spectrum. So we've got talks about people who run charities to people who run hugely commercial. Uh, operations we've got people doing talks on which are free to get into those who are quite expensive but focus on value for money and you've got um, those that are indoor those that are outdoor when I spent my time uh, business development at Merlin they were always focused on a balanced portfolio and a balanced portfolio meant uh, making sure that right across your business you have every aspect covered so everything balances indoor outdoor UK Europe USA whatever it is and I think with our conference, that's what we try and do. We try and balance all of those types of different types of operations so that everything is covered, not to the point where it's too thin and you don't learn anything. And that's the key to it, is that we go into the depth. And the depth, I think, is greater now because we do those breakout sessions and we've got time to do. Uh, we, we, in fact, we double up for those three different areas uh, just for that afternoon. So I think that's those are the things. If anyone asks me why they should come, it's about the variety and, and what gets covered. 
regardless of size of your attraction as well. And and, and actually, from my perspective as a supplier to the industry, it's just as valuable to come along and learn and understand what's going on in the sector. You don't have to be an attraction to come along and, and, and take part and be educated about what's happening in, in, in the sector. What about you, Ken? Um, well, I think that it, those of us that have stood on the stage at the QE2 Centre and looked at the people who have come can see that there aren't any slumbering faces out there. There are people making notes, people nudging the person next to them, people looking round when we ask a question. We now have a sort of red and green card system for do you agree, don't you agree, which we sometimes use, which is very, very interesting, engaging the mood of the room. And I think that the the thing about VAC is don't be lazy if we're going to come to VAC. Don't be lazy. If you're coming to VAC, look through the programme before you come and think about each of the sessions and jot down what questions you might like to ask those people or what you'd like to learn from that session. Write it down. Don't think you can remember it at the time. Bring it on a note with you when you come. And then you will find, and, and we all know this, that the networking that happens at the end of the day and in the breaks at VAC it's like a family wedding in a way. I mean, everybody wants to talk to everybody else. And it's it's so valuable. I mean, I think everybody who goes away from VAC should have a good few things that day, which they say, I, I wouldn't have thought of that if I hadn't have been there. You know, or even I disagree with that, but it's made me realize what my true opinion about that is. Equally valuable, but don't be a lazy attendee. Come and participate, come and enjoy, come and learn, come and take back benefit to everybody that works with you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that thing about um, not being scared to ask questions is really valid as well, Ken, because this happened to me, actually. I, I went to one of the seminar sessions, this is back in 2019, and was really inspired by one of the speakers about she uh, it was Jules Osbeck who was at Continuum Attractions at the time. And she talked about uh, marketing segmentation, but from had a completely different perspective on it in terms of not doing it demographically you know just talking about age brackets and things like that and it was really interesting I didn't get a chance to ask a question during the seminar but I found her afterwards and she was very very approachable very happy to answer my question Um, and then I stalked her on Twitter and got her to come on to the podcast afterwards um, to talk about it but you know that's for me what VAC is about is it's the openness that people are really willing to share so don't be afraid to you know go and go and find the speaker that you've been inspired by and go and ask them the question afterwards because everyone's really happy to talk about their their topic and they're really happy to help people. That's my little key takeaway from it anyway. Right. So it's going to be on Thursday, the 5th of October. This podcast episode is launching on the 20th of September. So you haven't got long to go and get your ticket. So make sure you do. It is the 5th of October. The QE2 Conference Centre in Westminster. The website address is vacevents.com. That's vacevents.com. And you can get your ticket there. All of this information will be in the show notes. So don't worry if you didn't get time to scribble that down. While I've got you all, though, because you're all uh, in the sector and you've got lots of insights to share, I want to know from each of you what you think that attractions should be focusing on and what 2024 might look like for the sector. Paul, what about you? Start with you. So I've been um, chatting to some of our operators. Um, we have some very large operators around the UK, asking them how how it's going. And unsurprisingly, you know, and you could have said the same question twenty years ago. What's our biggest challenge? It's the weather. 
You know, it's not actually the cost of living crisis. It's not COVID. You can put plans together for those things and you can work on it. But the weather always is a little bit of a challenge. So this uh, this summer, in inverted commas, has been quite hard to to focus on what what we can deliver. When the days have been half decent, actually, we've done quite well. You know, we always do relatively well in our certainly in our sector. I'm sure the others will great um, in, a, in a recession. So so the key seems to be, and I'm going to put it out, they haven't quite find, found the right words for it, but I'll develop this once uh, I've spoken to a few more. What, what every attraction for me has to have is an opportunity for people to downgrade what they did slightly. What they're doing is they're ringing up and saying, can't afford to do this. Have you got something that's almost like that? But, you know, whether it's a, a slightly different experience, less time, um, a, a one day less. So whatever the packages are, that people are offering, there has to be one rung lower than it was before to still encourage people to come along because they're not able to reach the same heights at the moment that they did previously, but they still want to have that family experience, that day out, create those memories. All of those things are still relevant. And if you don't have that opportunity, then they'll either go elsewhere or they won't go. So again, it's managing. So I'm not talking about huge discounts. I'm talking about uh, being relatively clever in what how, what you package and what you put together to make sure they still attend and they still get what they perceive to be value value for money. Uh, but unless you get, have that option, then I think they won't come. Really great advice, Paul. Thank you. Um, Bernard, what about you? Like Paul, actually, um, especially since uh, lockdown ended, but actually for about the last five or six years, um, I've noticed a particular thing, which is where visitor attractions have got reserves – and, and that's a big if, by the way, you know, particularly in the course of the last couple of years. But where they've got reserves, the number one thing that most of them are putting those reserve investments into are all year round, uh, all weather play facilities. So it comes back to Paul's point about kind of ensuring yourself against the the excesses of the weather and making sure that you're still particularly a family uh, attractive visitor attractions. So that, that'd be one. Second is a cost of living crisis, certainly for, for the average customer, but also the energy costs for visitor attractions too. I mean, I mean, just crazy amounts of money that the visitor attractions are now paying in terms of heating costs that they, they can't, you know, if you're a zoo or an aquarium, you can't turn down the temperature of your botanics. You know, it's, it's you know, you're a living botanics, you're a living reef. So we're going to have to find some way out of that. And that needs that means that actually for many organisations, it's going to be as financially challenging over the next 12 months as it has been over the last two. And then I think the third, and this is a this is a continual for me, and, and Kelly, you and I have talked about it before, but it, it forms the last session of the day at the VAC conference, which is diversity and inclusivity. And and my my feeling is that every visitor attraction should be critically honest about who comes, who doesn't, why they don't come, and what are you going to do about it. And in particular, those organisations who are in receipt of government money or public money, or who had COVID loans from the UK taxpayer, if their visitors don't look like the community in which they're housed, they have a moral question at the heart of their business. That's it. If you want to take public money, you need to have an audience that looks like the diversity of the public. And that's a challenge. I get that. I completely get that. 
But I think that making sure that we are as accessible in every conceivable way, economically, physically accessible to people, and that they see their stories and themselves reflected in their collections and and people and staff and volunteers and, and board members, um, I think that's the, the biggest challenge of the sector, as it is indeed to many other sectors. But but I think we're doing some amazing things and we need to shout about it and we need to share and we learn from need to learn from each other. Absolutely agree. And that session is going to be a really great session. That's one not to miss. Ken? Um, well, I, I would say two things. First of all, as far as um, our visitors are concerned, I think there is a more a bigger polarisation now than there ever has been between those who have money and can still afford to do things and are not much impacted by the current circumstances, despite everything, um, and those who haven't. And those who haven't have got to find ways of saving money, getting more for their money. There are so many things they can do that are free and alternatives that charged attractions find it difficult. I think we have to remember that the the biggest number of attractions in in the United Kingdom are heritage-based attractions, and they weren't purpose-built like many of Paul's members. The the attractions are purpose-built for entertainment. But heritage attractions have got a, a bigger responsibility or museums housed in historic buildings. And all the time they're having to cut their costs and finding life difficult. Money isn't going into maintaining that national heritage. And that's a real big long-term challenge, one that government can't ignore. So government has a vested interest in the health of our businesses because the more healthy they are, the less will fall back on the state eventually. One last thing I would like to mention Martin Evans and the tourism business. For the last, um, I don't know how many years, Martin has been the, the person who has put together this event for us. Uh, he, he comes with all the ideas to the committee. The committee put ideas to him. He takes it away. He has to do the heavy lifting. He is backed up by the, our conference organizers who are also very efficient. And the, and the other person that I wouldn't like to miss from this because if she could have been here today, you would have got a different flavour, is the wonderful Liz Terry and the support that her organisation, you know, that, that's Liz's organisation, her hard work in Leisure Media Group. She publishes Attractions Management magazine. She has never asked for anything from this conference and she gives it great support without which we wouldn't have made 20 years, as I said earlier. So that's a shout for Martin and a shout for um, Susan at our conference organisers, and also a big, big shout and a scream for Liz. That is lovely. Thank you. I'm sure Liz will very much appreciate that. We won't forget her. Don't worry. She'll be on the credits for this for this podcast. I always ask our guests to, to leave us with a book recommendation um, for our listeners. So a book that you've loved, a book that you've enjoyed as part of your career growth can be absolutely anything. So, Paul, what would you like to share with us today? Oh, I tell you what, books are a bit highbrow for me. Um, <laughs> yes, Bernard agrees with that. So I, I'm from the north. So I'm going to I used to travel a lot uh, uh, when I was working in North America, uh, commuting a little bit. Uh, so I did read a little bit then, but I very quickly swapped over to uh, podcasts, uh, things that I uh, download. Uh, I watch Silent Witness from the 90s, uh, the early 2000s repeatedly. I like uh, Meet, Marry, Murder, which is on one of the cable channels. So I'm uh, quite simple. So I don't really have a book recommendation. Uh, I think when I have time to read, 
uh, I will look forward to reading what somebody else recommends. Oh, well, I will take Silent Witness as a recommendation because I love Silent Witness, Paul. Oh, so good. Never miss an episode ever. So, okay, there you go. I mean, I can't give it away as a prize, but go and check out Silent Witness if you haven't. Bernard, what's yours? Uh, well, I've, I've been I've been on this before, and, and I remember my recommendation, and it sounds really facile, but it was absolutely true, was Lady Bird books yeah. when I was a kid. And then that's how I got into history and heritage and storytelling and absolutely loved them. And I've got I've, I've still got loads of them, which is a bit sad, actually. Um, I'm currently confined to home with a broken ankle. So I've been going through my big, you know, my big Bernard book of books um, of all the ones that I haven't got around to reading. And the one that I've enjoyed most and has really surprised me is Lucy Worsley's biography of Agatha Christie. Absolutely fascinating. I thought I knew her. Um, I thought I knew all about her. I know all of her characters. I've watched every conceivable film and TV programme. But what a fascinating woman. So uh, that's the one that I've loved this summer. Great recommendation. Yeah, I wondered what we were going to get from you, actually, because you've had a lot of time on your hands to go through that book pile. It was either going to be Agatha Christie or the Argos catalogue. Honestly, it, was, it could have gone. <laughs> it's not Christmas yet. You only do the Argos catalogue at Christmas. <laughs> Ken, over to you for our last recommendation. Well, the the best book, uh, quite hard to get hold of now, but I can supply copies, is Action for Attractions, the national policy document written in 2000. But if you if you want something other than that, then I have just finished reading a book which everyone else read years ago called Sapiens which yes. is about this thick, that's to say two and a half inches thick for those of you who are listening. It's by somebody, I just had to look him up because I couldn't have remembered it, if, if, by Yuval Noah Harari. And it is, it's entitled A Brief History of Humankind. And what's so interesting about it is it goes through segments explaining the great moves that have happened to us humans since we appeared on this earth. And I found the whole thing fascinating to read in one go, what, what, my, what took me a long time, particularly the last bit, which talks about how, you know, the commerce has changed the world and what we're all doing. And that's, after all, what we're doing at VAC. Um, we are engaged in the kind of commerce that is to entertain, amuse and give enjoyment to our visitors and at the same time keep the heritage of the country going and keep an awful lot of people employed. So um, I recommend Sapiens. And that's a great book. It took me a really long time to read as well, but it is an absolutely fascinating book. I would totally back up your recommendation there. Have you read the next one as well, Homo Deus? No, one a year is enough for me. <laughs> well, I've got a toddler, so reading doesn't come easy to me right now. But I'm, Homo Deus is next on my list to read because um, that's the next one on from, from Sapiens and it's supposed to be a really, really good read as well. Right, listeners, as ever, if you want to win a copy of Ken and Bernard's book, Retweet this episode uh, announcement with the words, I want the Vax books, and you will be put into a prize draw to win them. And also do go and watch Silent Witness, Paul's recommendation, because it is blooming brilliant. I love it. Thank you all so much for coming on to join me today. I've really appreciated it. It's It's been a fascinating kind of deep dive into the Visitor Attractions Conference. I genuinely love this conference. It is one absolutely not to be missed. I mean, there might be a, there might be a speaker. There might be... There might be a speaker called Kelly at this one this year, I think. I think it was you. So I'll be there. Come and see me too. Um, but no, thank you. It's been wonderful. And um, as I said, we will put all of the info in the show notes. 
and um, we'll put all of the connections to Paul, Ken and Bernard too. So if you've got any follow up questions that you want to ask them, I'm sure they'd be really happy to help. But it's vapevents.com. Go and grab your ticket now. Thank you, guys. And I have to tell you, Kelly, we are going to spend our time at our next committee meeting thinking of impossible questions for you for when you're speaking at VAC. Oh, God, do it. I love impossible questions. <laughs> Put me on the spot, Ken. I'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.